Welcome to the fourth episode of Ready to Launch, Entrepreneurship in the MENA Region, a joint series by Riada, a podcast of the Wilson Center, and the straight-up startup in Amman, Jordan, with Rajai Sahouri. I'm your co-host, Marissa Khurma, Director of the Middle East Program here at Wilson. We're truly delighted to speak with Chris Schroeder today, an American entrepreneur, investor, writer, and mentor, and author of the best-selling book, Startup Rising, The Entrepreneurial Revolution, Remaking the Middle East. A book that opened many eyes and ears here in Washington, especially, and across the United States about the budding and buzzing entrepreneurial scene in the MENA region. A book that Chris wrote to inject hope on how we here in America see the MENA region, challenging traditional narratives of war, conflict, and human despair that often define the region very narrowly in the media and in policy circles, which of course, as Chris writes, are not untrue. But these narratives also fall short of telling the whole story of the region, its diverse people, societies, economies, and evolving culture. Chris, thank you for joining us today. Oh, it's a thrill to be with you. Thank you for having me. So this discussion is very timely because you also started the tour of the MENA region and then wrote the book almost 10 years ago. And that coincided with the waves of protests and mass movements that swept across the region that were largely driven by a bottom-up, I guess, resolve and hope for change known as the Arab Spring or the Arab Uprising. So how does your book which is very much about hope for change, entrepreneurship and technology in particular, how does it read in today's MENA region, 10 years into the Arab uprisings and these revolutionary developments that we've witnessed? Does this narrative you presented still hold true? Well, first of all, let me thank you very much for including me. I just think your podcast is fantastic. And I think the work and the attention that you do at the Wilson Center and beyond is is just phenomenal. So I really am, am pleased to be with you. And in some respects, um, my book almost 10 years ago, which is hard to fathom, really, um, in many respects, missed it. I mean, if you read my book, it, it sort of outlined this dynamic of what happens in society when more and more people have access to technology. And we all know that talent is everywhere and it can be unleashed. And we know that people have demands that are quite shared universally around the world when they have access to technology. But at the same time, there are different dynamics. Uh, within MENA is different from Southeast Asia, is different from Latin America and the United States. And of course, even within MENA, uh, there are differences between what customers want in Jordan and, and Saudi Arabia and Egypt. And technology nice. unleashes all that. But the thing that's staggering is that what I wrote 10 years ago has been dwarfed. There's just so much more excitement, such a higher level and quality of talent and entrepreneurs um, and companies that have become so large and successful since then that there's really a flywheel of success breeding success, which I thought was going to happen 10 years ago, but I think it's exceeded in many ways my expectations then. That's really encouraging to hear. Uh, That's pretty much also the goal of this podcast, to shed light on a lot of these stories that continue to be untold, particularly here um, uh, in America. Um, But you also write about some of the... um, challenges that remain true today. And of course, you're right, there are variations across the region, um, but the unemployment rate, particularly after COVID-19 and its impact on the region and the global economy really um, has skyrocketed in countries like Tunisia, like Jordan, youth unemployment has hit 40% in Jordan. Um, So 
What do you say about some of these challenges, you know, 10 years in? I think it's uh, very real. In many respects, some of the worst challenges are disappointing because we all knew that in most of the countries, Amina, 30, 40, 50% of the population is under the age of 35. And at one level, that can have the challenge that you just described. At the same time, as an incredible amount of opportunity because it's a new generation with fresher thoughts, with a greater acceptance of capabilities and tools uh, to be able to change things. But that presumes, of course, that they have access to them and they have access to the skills and the critical thinking that allows them to do really interesting, successful things, whether it's in a startup environment or elsewhere in society to help move things forward. And so I think it's a, it's a very realistic way that you phrase it, that there are many things that have happened that have not been as unleashing and opening as universally as it can't be. But I don't in any way think that takes away from the kind of talent that is being unleashed and some of the larger problems that are also being solved in very different times and how even some of the dynamics within some of the governments and the regulatory environment, which is embracing some of these changes more than I would have predicted some years ago, is encouraging for the next 10 years. But you know, the fact that I get very excited by the access to technology, I get very excited about what happens when individuals are unleashed to have this you know, great potential to execute on the ideas they have. But the reality is, you know, tens, if not hundreds of millions of people in the Middle East, two billion, three billion people in the world have no access to these tools of potential at all. They don't have the skill base or the training to really understand how to actualize some good ideas that they have. And until we get that element of it right, we're always going to have this uh, journey of really interesting successes compounded with compounding problems that if we don't address could actually make things much more difficult than they are. Uh, fantastic points, uh, Chris. And, and, and first of all, I want to thank you for being here. And, and I just want to like build up on that. So um, when you were writing the book, you have witnessed uh, the passion and ambition of the Middle Eastern youth towards change in comparison with the previous um, uh, generations. Uh, and my question here is, uh, do you think that the passion of youth today is materializing through entrepreneurship towards change? What are your thoughts on that? I don't think there's any question about that there's a passion writ large for change that has, you know, obviously went back in, in ways that, that were not what hope people had hoped and dreamed for 10 years ago, but that they, it was somewhat sublimated did not mean it went away at all. And I think the way you phrase it is exactly right. I've never met an entrepreneur in the Middle East who doesn't have a problem in her teeth that she wants to solve to make her backyard or her country or the region or even global better than it is. And that level of passion and commitment with a level of seriousness, um, you know, I think is a very encouraging thing that continues to exist. The pressures on it, the difficulties of it, particularly coming out of the time of COVID, um, you know, are very real. And sometimes it feels like two steps forward and one step back. Um, but the great spirit of what an entrepreneur is, you know, you can't keep her down. She, she you can slow her down, but you can't stop her. And just a point to also build on that, particularly because there are those like yourself um, and uh, and others in, in the policymaking community in Washington that believes that um, there should be more entrepreneurship. Um, there should be more programs supporting the various ecosystems in the region. And there are also a few skeptics that say, well, entrepreneurship is no panacea basically to um, uh, the, the, the region's um, unemployment challenge and particularly amongst youth. So what do you tell the skeptics? Because we also know that not all entrepreneurs 
succeed from the first time around. And accepting failure is not exactly a mindset that is um, prevalent in the MENA region. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think it's true in a lot of parts of the world. Also, what I'll also tell you for all the talk about America loving failure, I, I've never I've never met that. I mean, no one I know loves it. It's always very difficult. But uh, the mindset that you're alluding to, which is important, which again, I'm seeing more of in Mina before, which is that failure is learning and I could dust myself off and try something new is, is a very powerful one. And uh, I see this now as one of the more exciting things that I see in startups globally, but particularly Mina, which is a caliber of women and men who have done it before in some form. And sometimes they succeeded. They may have spun out of Kareem, for example, or out of soup.com or, or out of DoorDash or some other company where they've learned how to do it, or they've tried a company before and often they hasn't worked, but they've dusted themselves off and they're back on the field to try to take that learning in a, in a really much more sophisticated and interesting way uh, with the lessons that they take. Now, the skeptics have said this to me for a long time, which is, you know, it really doesn't matter. It's kind of a sideshow of a sideshow. And even my friends who are economists, you know, I think they just don't understand multiplier effects because this isn't just about, you know, how many companies can be built will take care of how much employment in and of itself in an individual case, but it is a multiplier effect. And what I mean by that is, you know, if you're a company like Kareem, that's a fantastic company that employed a lot of people in and of itself. But what people often don't measure is there's now been literally hundreds of Kareem employees as I alluded to before, who are starting companies and they know now know how to do it. And that's a multiplier effect because every one of the companies that succeeds of a Kareem veteran is going to spin off another generation of entrepreneurs. And then we have more and more evolution, more and more uh, success in solving problems and giving people skills and opportunities that I think can be very powerful. And is it a panacea? Of course not. There are no panaceas in this world. But is it is it something available? to unleash potential and to allow people to build in ways that you and I could barely talk about when I wrote that book. Absolutely. So it doesn't have to be everything, but it certainly is a significant contributor to a tremendous amount of potential. And I think um, to your point about those who have been part of the Kareem experience now, um, you know, uh, having built a skill set are trying their own businesses and their own um, entrepreneurial projects. There's also the uh, that I mean that ha that works in the opposite direction. So if they were part of startups that failed, they can then be recruited in bigger companies. And I know that we've talked to some entrepreneurs that said, actually, we love those who have started their own businesses and failed because they have a skill set that's very unique. And you know th that experience in itself um, makes them really good candidates because then they become part of. A larger organization, and they um, they put teach. all of and exactly teach, mentor, and then help build the culture of the organization. So that's a I mean, it's really such good a powerful point. point, and it's another. That's even a different multiplier effect, and and that's the other thing which is interesting because people sometimes will say there's this thing called you know startups and tech companies over here, and then there's big business and traditional over there, and there's government jobs over there and everything else. But it's all part and parcel of what it means to be and take advantage of the potential of the 21st century. And large every company is a tech company now in some form. Large companies know that they have to learn how to innovate. It's a reason why a lot of large companies now have, in fact, even created their own venture capital arms to be able to uh, get that DNA and learn about it. They know they have to bring it in to be competitive globally. 
Um, and even governments. I mean, for goodness sake, you look at some of the some of the people serving government today, particularly in places like uh, UAE and uh, Saudi. These are extraordinarily talented women and men, some of whom, by the way, have also worked in the tech community or bringing that knowledge there. So it's it's we have this proclivity to want to like bifurcate things and put it differently. But I actually think there's a holism here. And I think you touched on a perfect example of, of why this is all part and parcel of something much bigger than any one little element of it. Um, yeah, fantastic point, Christopher. And I just want to touch on more on the point that, uh, of the of the governments and their impact. So you mentioned in the book back then uh, that the governments of the Middle East uh, were considering the role and impact of like mobile technology in the economy. Back then, it was just starting, and therefore they wanted to introduce more flexible regulations to help uh, tech-based businesses and startups in order for them to thrive. So basically, that uh, like this was the narrative for the governments back then. And uh, like I want to ask you, um, which governments have been acting upon it, and which of them are leading today, in your opinion? Look, I think everyone is has been working their way through it, but a couple of, of really are becoming models that other countries, not just in the region, but elsewhere, can really look at and study. And I think that you've seen a tremendous amount of opening and sophistication uh, coming out of the UAE, who's leaned very forward on general not only attraction of talent in the region, but global talent to want to come and have the ability to experiment and to build things. I think you see in UAE and Saudi now a lot of uh, flexibility and intrigue of building regulations and laws specifically for fintech on fintech's terms, not merely trying to jerry-rig fintech companies into old banking laws, but to think about these new capabilities and new potentials and behavioral acceptances that have been particularly accelerated out of COVID. And trying to open that up in more interesting ways and have a more fluid and understandable process. We see sandboxes in both countries and in Egypt where entrepreneurs are able to figure out how to work with the regulatory environment and to experiment on different things so people can co-author solutions. And and almost none of that was happening uh, when I was writing that book uh, 10 years ago. It was talked about and it was a little bit of piecemeal now, but it's much more systemic. I think it's nowhere near where it can be because I think that there's always much more potential to find ways not only to make the most efficacious rule of law and and predictability of it, but also knowing when to kind of step back and just putting confidence in the entrepreneurs that they're going to solve some big problems that can actually benefit everyone. Um, But one, I think the process has accelerated, and I think COVID actually has helped to do that. And secondly, I see a lot of really interesting discussion where, where policymakers and regulators and entrepreneurs and venture capitalists and business community are really listening to each other to understand what the needs are to try to lean into where the potential can be. It's a, it can be a mixed batting average, I think, in different places, but there's some interesting lessons and trends that I think could be replicable. Uh, you bring up the United Arab Emirates as um, a leading example, um, and I just wanted to sort of put it in the context of this um, anecdote and then ask you to comment on it. So just a few months ago, um, a, um, a UAE-based gaming startup called Joakid was acquired by a Sweden-based um, group for over $200 million. And the co-founders and the vast majority of staff um, are both Jordanian. They, in fact, have an office in Jordan, but somehow they registered this in the UAE. So this is a good example of, you know, I guess the the region's talents taking advantage of opportunities, but what does it say about Jordan? 
Well, I think it, it, it really depends. I mean, there has been, and this even was going on and beginning to go on uh, when I wrote the book uh, many years ago. Then I, you know, I updated the book about six years ago, so it's a little bit closer, but still vastly different, which is talent is everywhere and talent can be unleashed. And if you want to build something for a country or maybe, a, you know, like the Levant or a certain part of the region, you know, you can do that. But if you really want to go global, if you want to be expansive, Dubai was a great place to headquarter. And now people are beginning to look at Riyadh and, and elsewhere because the infrastructure is more sound than ever before. You know, the Wi-Fi works, uh, airports are highly functioning. Again, rule of law was more inviting and opening to the movement of goods, services and talented and talents and very importantly, capital. And, and in a way that there was nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's almost like, you know, Singapore plays a very particular role in Southeast Asia and that in no way has denigrated great entrepreneurs that are in Indonesia or Vietnam or what have you. And um, in a way that there could be hubs where if you want to go global, you could use them. I mean, as you know better than I, if there, there's something like this, over a third of the entire world's population is a four-hour plane ride from Dubai. And so it can work out that way. And so it can be a kind of a win-win. Talent can be anywhere. And even in smaller markets, they can do very well in smaller markets, but you can then expand. Having said that, there's no reason on earth why every country can't have a focus on trying to make the rule of law work in really, really interesting, powerful ways. I mean, again, Singapore is a tiny country. UAE was a relatively small country at its time, and it began to become this kind of hub. And so there's no reason why Jordan could not also replicate some of that fluidity and openness and ability to attract talent and capital that allows a great company to be built anywhere. Because I'll tell you, if COVID has taught us anything, it has taught us that you can build companies anywhere and have talent everywhere. And that, to me, blows things open. I can't tell you the number of friends I have in Silicon Valley who came from this deep, deep bias for decades, that if you're going to invest, if you want to be a great startup, you got to be within 50 miles of Sand Hill Road you know, in, in, in California. And every, even the most adamant believer of that is now looking at what's happened in COVID and so we have to rethink our game plan. Talent wants to be everywhere. It can't be everywhere. If there's good rule of law, if there's good ability to invest, uh, we know that we're going to have to cultivate those that talent where it is and help to unleash it where it is on the terms of what it wants to be and open up its ability to access talent wherever it can be. And I think the more and more countries that really understand that opportunity and look to ways to lean into it and to accept and encourage it, I think we could have a very different conversation about Jordan five years from now and almost any country that makes the constructive specific uh, path to go there. That's a really um, good point, Chris. And it reminds me of one of the stories that the current minister of the digital economy in Jordan shared a few months ago in our interview, which uh, basically was on how COVID accelerated the emergence of all these different startups, particularly um, in tech and in healthcare. So he said that it took about 20 days for a Jordanian company to build the vaccination platform, the vaccination registration platform in Jordan. 20 days. <laughs> if, you, if you're going to go now to Amman and register a company, it's going to take you about three months. Um, and so it's interesting how, you know, a global crisis, I guess, you know, push the government in a certain direction to facilitate and open up the ecosystem and, and look at what we were able to, to, to reap, right, in a so very short period of time. So that's huh. a really, really good example. And more to your point about 
well, if these governments in the region want to see more unicorns emerging from their ecosystems, they really have to get going and ease some of the laws and reform. It's very powerful. It's very powerful. Yeah. No, I agree. Like, uh, like we're seeing that in Jordan, like how, how also like the, um, in terms of crisis, how it might accelerate uh, even more progress. So this is fantastic. And, um, and I want to touch point on, on, um, uh, on the types of entrepreneurs you have, uh, 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 you have described in your book, Chris. So you have uh, um, you've categorized them into into improvisers, problem solvers, and global players. And uh, and we can see from the from the improvisers, uh, like the company, um, uh, the startup Tomatum, which has recently raised eleven million dollars from Crafton, uh, uh, the company that uh, built um, uh, the game PUBG. So I want to more touch base on that, so we can inform our audience. Uh, more about them and where are these types heading uh, now in the Middle East who are succeeding more? Um, are we seeing more trends in, in, in a certain category more than the other? Uh, 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 like, what are your thoughts on that? So I, I use the word improvisers because I can't stand the term copycat, which was a term that used to be used, you know, quite frequently uh, globally, not just Amina. And, and copycat meant you know, you have a company that succeeded somewhere in the West, in the United States or whatever, and therefore they literally would make it relevant to the region. And people who didn't understand it thought merely it was about maybe language or the very act of being there. And in the early, early days, there's certainly an element that was there. But the great companies, which is why I call them innovators, really understood that there were very different behavioral paradigms that only they understood in their backyard. And when you look at a company like Kareem, who, who there's no way on earth in the old playbook of tech, which is that if people have access to technology, it means somebody from Silicon Valley eventually will come in there and become the dominant player, right? I mean, the WhatsApp of anywhere would be WhatsApp, the Instagram of whatever would be Instagram, Uber of whatever was going to be Uber. And what does Kareem do? Kareem leans into unbelievable expertise on the ground down to the smallest kinds of details that Uber would ignore. Like they, years in advance, or at least months in advance, offered uh, the ability to pay cash in your rides, which is completely sensitive to the ground there that, of course, the Uber people didn't understand at all. And if you have that sense of understanding, if you get a sense of the way people behave, if you understand who the influencers are within a community, you can build all sorts of enterprises that, sure, they're called ride sharing or sure, they're called e-commerce or whatever, but they're not merely copying what was out there. They're leaning deeply into the nuance because one of the most exciting things about the era that we're in right now is that consumers have choice. Ten years ago, if a Facebook showed up, Facebook was pretty much the only game in town. If uh, Instagram showed up, it was kind of the only game in town. Well, today, there's incredible innovators from the region on the region's terms answering regional issues and understanding that makes it just more accommodating. And that, to me, is an extremely exciting phenomenon. And that, to me, is is what I mean then, but also I think we're on steroids now, um, are the improvisers. So um, thank you, Chris, for that. I, I wanted to touch upon um, uh, the technology and uh, access to technology in the region, because your book really zooms into uh, startups that are in the tech uh, sector or are using technology to basically advance or solve a particular problem. Um, but there 
are also studies that have been published um, most recently by the um, United Nations ESQA office about the digital divide in the MENA region. So we, we do see uh, this divide basically in some cases gender-based and others rural versus urban. Um, and of course, there is a generational one as well where you see, for example, e-commerce activity that um, has been on the rise, particularly in 2019, 2020, because of the pandemic. When you when you zoom in and look at the age group, it's really like the 22 to, to 35 age group in particular. So um, how do you think governments and the private sector can work together to also address the digital divide? Because more access means more likelihood for success for a lot of these entrepreneurs. So what I think there's brewing now is a way almost two digital divide. I mean, there, there are many, as you pointed out, demographically and so on, there are many, but I've been sort of raising the plane a little bit higher. There's sort of two that I see about it. And one is what you talked about, which is access. I mean, the fact of the matter is from an infrastructure basis and from uh, an affordability basis, if there are tens of millions or hundreds of millions of people who simply do not have access to the basic tools of the 21st century, the equivalent of electricity or water of the 21st century. It's as if we're saying to them, yes, of course you can compete. Yes, of course you can uh, be a part of the economy, but you're not allowed to use the road. And that's that's what we are saying. We're willing to accept for our fellow citizens and, and human beings in the world if, if we do not crack the access code. And there's no question that uh, that there are private sector solutions and the mobile carriers and a lot of people have been doing some amazing things in that area. But policymaking, regulation, who can make the commitment to this access and giving people the, the tools and training to understand it uh, is important. Now, you know, people are worried about access because they sometimes are worried about security issues and they're worried about things that they cannot control. That is an element of this. But as we've seen, you know, in many parts of the world, uh, you know, Internet access now could get 60, 70, 80 percent and the economies are benefiting powerfully from it. And so. It really, it takes leadership and it takes a commitment, both bottom up and top down, to say it is unacceptable to have that number of people not yet part of it. Again, it's been very exciting. And I think the jury is still out about what COVID is doing this. But so many people were forced for the first time to, to buy things online, to get mobile money. People who never, ever had a bank account before now have tools and capabilities to have access to credit. People who never thought they could really get educated online were compelled to, to take courses online and will have to think differently about how we think of someone as, quote unquote, being educated before that. I can't tell you the number of stories that I hear out of MENA of people, um, particularly women, who really were never that comfortable seeing a doctor and all of a sudden can engage with a doctor in the comfort and security of their own home. I mean, this is early days of it. But we can see a lot of things are happening. But again, if you don't have the access, that's very exciting for the people who do, but is unacceptable um, for us as society, for the people who are not. Now, the second access to technology is in a more narrow lens, the second uh, divide. And that is, um, you know, we are way beyond the story of, every, of everyone with a, uh, a phone having a smart device, which is a supercomputer, right? That was, that was a big part of my speech for years, which is that every person with a smart device, and now they're very affordable smart devices, that they're walking around with a supercomputer in their pocket. They have more computing mm -hmm. power in their hand than NASA ever had to put a man on the moon. But, but now we're talking about other things. We're talking about machine learning. We're talking about artificial intelligence. We're talking about in health areas like genomics. We're talking about revolutions which are happening in technology 
which certain countries like China and the United States and Europe and elsewhere are breaking out. And it's going to be important that this becomes part of the, of the, of the DNA of, of, of MENA and beyond. The thing that's exciting for me in that is the sine qua non for a great application of machine learning or AI is unique data. And one of the things which is so exciting about this generation of startups is they know more about their customers. They have more data about things that they're trying to solve than any resource on earth. Now we have to find the talent and the capabilities to unleash that more and more and more because then they'll take their enterprises and their impact to a higher level. And it's happening. You know, it's happening very aggressively. Some great talent is coming home. People are partnering with talent around the world. But that's that's something where particularly I think Mia uh, will have to step up as the world is moving so quickly generally. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Um, uh, fantastic point, uh, Chris. But, but, but I want to also touch point on, 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 a, uh, on a point you mentioned in the book that, uh, um, that successful entrepreneurs in the Middle East often uh, hold a degree from uh, like universities abroad. But I want to know more about the youth and entrepreneurs who have studies in local and um, regional universities. How does entrepreneurship uh, come about for them? And to what extent are they capable to drive change? You know, I think it's a, it's a, a significant change uh, from my book. And not mm. just in MENA, but I'm seeing this elsewhere. And, and don't get me wrong. It's very exciting when amazing young people come from their home country and they study in a university elsewhere that they really admire and come mm-hmm. home. I think that's a very powerful story. It was happening when I wrote the book and it's happening much more. It's other amazing training grounds. Now, um, young, talented people who are going to consulting firms or whatever will do it for a year or two and are using that learning to, to help build amazing things and all that. But but all of that isn't as interesting as what I sort of touched on before about what COVID has unleashed, which is that there's just, you know, essentially all of human knowledge at one's fingertips. Like there's almost... Anything that you want to learn about anything, any way that you want to teach yourself about anything, it's actually available to you one click away. And what we're seeing is a lot of self-taught autodidact folks. Some of them went to university um, in the region. Some of them went to university elsewhere. Some of them didn't go to university at all, but are starting to train themselves and learn in ways that are very powerful. And frankly, to, to one of your earlier points, companies, not just in the Middle East, but elsewhere, have to rethink what it means to be credentialed and have the skill base to work in an organization. We're entering a world with, where, you know, if you get a four-year degree from a great school, and I don't care if it's AUB or if it's, um, you know, uh, Georgetown, that's great. That's a good fit for some people. But the fact of the matter is millions and millions of people now are unbelievably capable who have taken courses online. They don't have that sort of old school four-year credential, but they have all the skill. In some respects, they may even have more specific skills. And so it's incumbent upon the most far forward-reaching companies and organizations, and it's certainly a non-issue to me as a venture capitalist. When I see talent, I see talent. When I see they can do what they say they can do, that's all I care about. And I think that's going to become a real major shift in the next 10 years if we have a conversation about it. And Chris, we're already seeing so much work um, in, in different parts of the region to sort of, for example reframe the technical and vocational colleges um, and make them very technology focused um, and and redefine what that means for the average, let's say, Jordanian family or the average Tunisian family that very often discourages their children to go into that 
um, you know, vocational and technical path, um, which is a, which, you know, is also much needed. So, you know, Luminous University in Jordan, Hussein Technical University are two examples where they're also very much focused on uh, digitization and digital skills beyond just the basic skills. We're talking about very much the, you know, um, uh, access to much higher technology, um, as you've uh, you've described um, as well. Do you see um, investors from the United States still eyeing the region um, as as a potential hub for entrepreneurs, um, or has the thinking not changed as much in the last ten years? Hey, look, I think that there is much more global reach, and I think COVID also has accelerated this in the in the eyes of, um, say, Western venture capitalists. Some of it, I will also note, is generational. I think that we're seeing, um, you know, seed and pre-seed rounds finding great entrepreneurs who made a lot of money and they're investing as individuals from all over the world who are looking at MENA and they're looking at Southeast Asia and they're looking at Latin America and they're looking at Africa and North Africa and Egypt and all. Um, and so you you're definitely have been seeing a shift in that. I think that the larger players uh, in the West and particularly in America, there are, there are exceptions to this, Sequoia is an exception to this, um, that really still remain hyperly focused on America and maybe Europe. Some have had great success in the last two or three years in Latin America, and that, that has given them courage to start looking for talent elsewhere. Those with great sector expertise um, in things like fintech start to realize that this is now happening everywhere. And you know, they've had great success in America. Maybe they've looked at Latin America and they're beginning to look very seriously in, in places like the Middle East and Pakistan and India and beyond. Um, and so I think we've actually hit a tipping point in the last two years. And the other thing is you've got a lot of other interesting players who were not there, who were going earlier that at the, are doing this at the global level. And SoftBank, of course, has redefined in many ways what it means to invest in emerging markets in ways that are both, I think, helpful to entrepreneurs and sometimes problematic because of the valuations that they tend to throw out. Tiger is out there now looking everywhere, uh, including in the Middle East uh, for the first time. A group called KOTU mm -hmm. is doing the same. And so literally from the earliest, earliest stage to the later stage, things are lighting up now. The, the mm -hmm. interesting side effect of that is as these investors and as dollars become global, two things end up happening. One is unbelievable local uh, talent in venture capital is rising. I mean, you know, you look at Saudi Telecom Ventures for their size and you look at Nor Suede and what she's built in the Middle East and they're amazing women actually really rising in the venture capital space. Like there's just been a whole series of funds that have come that are local. It, do, it doesn't really matter whether the West is paying attention anymore. And at right. the same time, th for those who are global investors, they can choose anywhere. So they can look at a company, a certain space, property tech, or whatever it might be in the Middle East. They're also looking at one in India. They're looking at one in Southeast Asia. And so that means that entrepreneurs have to be not only regionally competitive, they have to be globally competitive to find the most exciting money. And so this, is a, this I think, we're yeah. going to look at as a tipping point period. And what about the, the diaspora? Because you, you do talk about, for example, Tekwadi. So I love TechWadi, and I think it was really a pioneering group. And we know, despite what I said about everything going global, though I'll come back to still that's important even from a diaspora perspective, that when there is this connective tissue from extraordinary talent in places like Silicon Valley that has this connection back at home, 
um, amazing ma- magic has happened. That certainly has happened in Israel. That has happened in India. Uh, it's happened in other places. And and it's it's amazing because there's such a broad and exciting um, uh, population for Mina in Silicon Valley that hasn't quite unified at the same level as those, as those other efforts. Um, but the fact of the matter is it may matter less. Like what, what was mm-hmm. important about that kind of singular organizing principle is now happening in WhatsApp groups. It's happening in a much more diffuse way where good people are finding good people and helping each other wherever they may be. And this right. is an important thing because it's not just finding diaspora in America. It's finding diaspora in Europe. It's finding diaspora elsewhere in Africa. Globally. It's finding diaspora globally. Mm-hmm. And that's totally exciting and very new. Mm, absolutely. Fantastic. Fantastic interview and and an amazing points, uh, Chris. Thank you so much. Um, but before we end our interview, I want to ask you for the um, before you launch uh, words of wisdom. What would you say to entrepreneurs, youth out there um, who wants to start their business but they're kind of hesitant? Uh, what are your advice? Well, I, I have two very quick ones. One is kind of a cliche because people talk about it, but don't be hesitant. If you have it in your teeth, a problem that you want to solve take a shot at it. And therefore, the most important thing for you is persistence. And that's the difference between a good and a great entrepreneur. In many ways, it doesn't mean that you don't listen to data. It doesn't mean you don't pivot. If you learn the market is saying something to you, but you you know, you know, can be slowed down, but you can't be stopped. But the second thing, which I think is very important in this very frothy period we're in, because there is a lot of capital investing everywhere now. Valuations are very, very high. And that's great for entrepreneurs because entrepreneurs can give up less of their company in order to get money. But what really it means is what I said parenthetically earlier, which is entrepreneurs have choice. And therefore, Mm. what I say to entrepreneurs all the time is think hard about your individual weakness. Think hard about the industry you're getting in and where you want to get shored up and learn skills that you need to win. And you can find investors, whether they're individuals or institutions, who can actually help you. So everyone is tempted to take a big name or they want to get a big name or they want to get into white combiner. That's all great. No criticism at all. But I find the most innovative and interesting entrepreneurs are not intimidated by money. They're confident they know a lot, but they're really confident what they don't know. And they therefore want to surround Mm. people and money that can help them really, really take their game to the next step. And that element of choice available today was Mm -hmm. was unheard of 10 years ago and has been completely accelerated in the period that we're in. And I hope I hope she really leans into that into that exercise. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you so much, Chris. This has been a very insightful um, and uh, uplifting discussion yes. um, about entrepreneurship, about youth and about um, the prospects of more success and more progress um, in the MENA region. Um, are you thinking about um, a new book? You know, it's interesting. I have been kicking around a new book that's uh, more globally minded, of which, of course, Mina will play a significant role. Um, but I just simply haven't had time to really dedicate to it. It's just such a busy and exciting period. And I've, I, I miss travel tremendously, but literally from five in the morning in Asia, swinging through the Middle East on my way to Africa and Latin America, I'm on one Zoom after the other. And that tends, it tends to keep me yep. busy and not wanting too many screens. So we'll see. Sounds familiar. Well, keep us posted. Thank you once again for um, your time and your insight. And we hope to continue the discussion in the near future. Such yes, fun thank you so you much, Chris. Thank we you appreciate both. your time. Congrats all you do. Thank you. Thank you.
This podcast is funded by a grant from the United States Department of State. The opinions, findings, and conclusions of this podcast are those of our guests and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Department of State.